Back when I was in seminary, one of my favorite classes was on the book of Acts, as well as a number of the New Testament letters. And it was taught by one of the most popular professors at our seminary. Now, this was known, though, as a very difficult class, grade-wise, and especially the quizzes in this class were particularly difficult. The quizzes are actually quite legendary at our school. Uh, even people who didn't ever take this class knew all, all about the quizzes in this particular class. There were seven quizzes throughout the semester, and they consisted of 20 questions. It was an oral examination where the professor would read the questions out loud and then give you just a few seconds to write your answer. Because it was an oral examination, it was difficult, if not impossible, to go back uh, and answer any of the questions that you didn't know the answer to right away. And what made these quizzes even more difficult is that they could ask any question about anything in any of the books of the Bible that the quiz was over. Now let me give you an example of a few of these questions. Uh, First of all, Acts chapter 12, you have Peter. He has a miraculous escape from prison as the angel lets him out. He goes to Mary's house. What's the name of the servant girl who lets Peter into the house? Rhoda. Acts chapter 16, uh, you have uh, Luke is talking about Lydia. He explains where Lydia is from. Where is Lydia from? You guys were in first service. (laughs) Thyatira. Okay, one for you, even if you were in first service. First Corinthians. In the greeting of 1 Corinthians, you have Paul's the primary author. Who's listed as a secondary author of 1 Corinthians? You don't know that one, do you? Sosthenes. These are the types of questions that are on these quizzes. 20 questions. I mean, you can imagine the intensity level in the room during these quizzes. You're listening intently to make sure you hear the question accurately. And, and you need to get the answer down on paper as quickly as possible before the professor goes to the next question. It was a very intense environment in studying for these quizzes and then taking these quizzes. And a lot of students complained about the quizzes because, I mean, they seem so hard. They seem like trivia-type quizzes. And, and the professor rationalized the quizzes this way. He said, if I knew of a better way to get you to really read and study Scripture and to know it, I would do that other way. But I don't know of a better way to get you to read Scripture over and over and over to really internalize it than this. And I agree with him. I mean, if he said, you just need to read through this this book of the Bible a few times, I mean, I would have done that, but I wouldn't have remembered that much of it. But you really have to study if you want to be able to answer these types of questions. But even with the intensity in the classroom during these quizzes, there's always a group of students who was carefree during that time. They really didn't seem to have a care in the world. I mean, they weren't concerned about the intensity of these quizzes. And this group of students who I'm referring to were the auditors of this class. You see, in college classes and seminary classes, the bulk of the students in the classes are actually taking a class for credit. And they have to uh, live out the full responsibilities of the class in terms of reading the books and, and writing the papers and taking the quizzes and taking the tests. But when you audit a class, you really don't have any of those types of responsibilities. All you do is just come to the class, you listen, you can take notes if you want. You don't have to buy the books. You don't have to read the books. You don't have to take the quizzes. You don't have to write the papers. You don't have to take the tests. You're simply there gathering information. And on these quiz days, those students who are simply auditing the class would just sit back during the quiz unconcerned about what's going on there because they're simply there just to gather information just for the fun of it. Now, that works in college classes and in seminary classes. 
But we, what we need to recognize is that God is not interested in people auditing the Christian faith or auditing church or auditing the Bible. But it's so easy to approach it that way where we approach our faith as gaining information and liking the experience of it, but not really applying it to our lives, not really liking it when you have to work a little bit harder uh, to live out that Christian faith. I'm going to make a little confession this morning about how I have a tendency sometimes to kind of audit my Christian faith, and maybe you can resonate with what I'm sharing. Each morning, I I have a, a routine of reading Scripture. But I find that a lot of days I'm reading Scripture, and as soon as I close the Bible... And I go about my day, I completely forget about what I read. I don't think about it again until, at best, the next morning when I open up Scripture again. And there are often times when I'm reading Scripture, they read a few paragraphs or a chapter, and I get to the end of it, and I have no idea what I just read. My eyes may have seen the words, but they didn't even register in my mind. So then I have no chance of really living it out in my life. Or, or I think of going to church. Going to church has changed uh, for me in the last few years. Being a pastor uh, changes the way that I am involved in church. Now I can usually remember pretty well what I said on Sunday mornings. But I think back to a few years ago. For instance, when I was in seminary, we went to a good church. Um, I mean, I would always enjoy the messages and the church service and would learn things from the classes. But five minutes after we left the church building and our garage door shut, I wasn't even thinking about church anymore most days. I mean, if you asked me to regurgitate what I heard, I might be able to do that. But it really wasn't influencing my life that much at that point. Or I think about books I read, and I'm really inspired when I read the books. Or I think about conferences I've gone to, and I hear an inspiring speaker, or just hear something, hey, I really want to apply that in my life. I'm all fired up. But then within a few days, my, my, my reality comes crashing back in. And as fired up as I was about what I read or what I heard at the conference, things are back to normal. And what I read or heard isn't really influencing my life all that much. And that's what it's like to audit the Christian faith, where you're gaining more information in your head, but you really aren't living it out in your life. As I said, God really isn't that interested in people auditing church or auditing the Christian faith or auditing the Bible just to gain more information. God's looking for people who will be full, wholeheartedly committed to following him and putting into practice the things that he says in Scripture. I invite you to turn your Bibles today to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at how we move beyond simply being auditors of the Christian faith to where we can actually grow as followers of Christ. Today we're in the fourth week of our Follower App series. Follower Apps is all about looking at how we can apply the Christian faith to our lives on a day-to-day basis. In the in this series, we're studying the book of James. We're breaking it down into three main parts, looking at three main categories of follower apps. And the, this first category that we're looking at is faithfulness to God. The first week, we, we looked at faithfulness to God through trials, and then the next week was through temptations, and then last week, we looked at faithfulness to God through frustrations. And today, we're talking about a general principle that can help us to be faithful to God in practically all areas of our life. And we're going to be looking at this out of James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. We're going to break this passage into two different parts today. So I invite you to follow along as I begin reading James 1, verse 22. James says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, I really look at verse 22 as the main point in the entire book of James. Uh, James is all about practical applications to our lives. There are uh, 54 commands in the book of James. It's a short book. I mean, that's a lot of commands. But James is all about how can we practically apply principles of following Christ to our lives. I think James 22 sums it all up when he says, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. He's saying there that followers apply God's word. God's word meaning scripture. Followers apply scripture to their lives. And I look at verse 22 as a bit of a warning statement for us so that we do not misuse the Bible. Now, if you go to a store and purchase some sort of product, you're probably familiar with warning labels that may be on these products, whether it's in the instruction book or on the packaging. There are a lot of warning labels out there for how you ought to use a product or how you can avoid misusing that product. And oftentimes when I read these warning labels, I think, that seems like common sense, doesn't it? Or some of the labels seem almost ridiculous. Uh, let me give you a few examples of some of these warning labels that are out there on products that you can purchase. For instance, you purchase a baby stroller. Odds are good somewhere on the packaging or in the instruction manual, you're going to see this warning. Remove child before folding. Now, I think of that, and I think, I mean, that seems like common sense that you would remove your child. You wouldn't fold up your child in the stroller. Um, sometimes parents may be frustrated enough to feel like you might want to do that, but in reality, I mean, a normal sane parent would not do that. But they feel like they need to put that instruction on there. Uh, take your child out before you fold up the stroller. Another one has to do with sun shields, that you see, like the cardboard things that you put on windshields of car to keep the sun out. You don't see them as much today as you used to. But on some of these, they say, don't drive with sunshield in place. I mean, again, to me, that seems like common sense. The only way you're going to drive with that in place and be safe at all is stick your head out the window. But why wouldn't you just take it down in the first place? How about if you buy a toilet, toilet bowl brush for cleaning the toilet, and it says, not for oral use? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that makes sense, especially if you use it one time. Something else that shouldn't be for oral use are firecrackers. A lot of firecrackers have this warning on them. Flammable, do not put in mouth. Now, I imagine at some point, someone probably put firecrackers in their mouth and lit them and got seriously hurt. And then there was a lawsuit, and then now the firecracker companies have to put that warning label on there. How about this one? A 500-piece puzzle, some assembly required. I mean, to me, that just makes sense because if you don't have some assembly, it's not a puzzle in the first place. These last two are some of my favorites. One is in, in the instruction manual for a chainsaw. It says, do not attempt to stop the blade with your hand. <laughs> Again, it seems like that's pretty common sense if you don't stop the blade with your hand. But I guess, I mean, they probably had some mishaps with that and they want to make sure that they aren't liable anymore if someone doesn't use their common sense in stopping a blade. And finally, this is on a package of juggling balls, those balls you can buy that help you juggle. You have to bear with me on this one. This is a longer one. This says, this product contains small granules under three millimeters, not suitable for children under the age of 14 years in Europe or eight years in the United States. So I'm guessing there is something lost in translation there or else American children are much better able to swallow and digest three millimeter granules than European children. I don't know, but... 
These are some of the warning labels that you see out there on products that you can purchase. And I, I think the intent behind them, even though they seem like common sense, the intent is that they've seen some people sometimes who misuse products with very bad consequences. And then there were probably some lawsuits involved. So they feel the need to put some warning labels on there to protect themselves and to protect the consumer. Now, when I look at this passage in James chapter 1, verse 22, I see what could be a similar warning label. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. When you read that, it sounds awfully straightforward. It sounds like common sense of, well, wouldn't you want to apply the Bible to your life? But James is making it abundantly clear, just in case any of us miss that common sense point, that if you don't apply the Bible to your life, you're missing the whole point. He says, don't merely listen to the word. We understand that in that culture, uh, back when James is writing, it was a very oral culture. Uh, not that many people read, and they didn't have that many books to read. Today we have books in abundance, and, and we all have access to copies of the Bible. But back then they didn't have this type of access to written literature. And so a lot of what they received in terms of information was heard in the form of teaching. Now granted, they had much better attention spans than most of us do today. And they had ways of remembering things uh, that, that were excellent for remembering information that we really aren't that good at remembering those things, especially compared to them back then. But then they, they mainly heard the Word of God. But James told them, don't merely listen to the Word of God and so deceive yourselves. You see, if we satisfy ourselves with just hearing the Word of God or reading the Word of God or podcasting the Word of God and we don't actually apply it, we're, in, we're, we're um, in grave danger of really deceiving ourselves. Deceiving ourselves means that we are blind to truth. See, what happens is that we gain a lot of information about God and about the Bible and about the Christian life. I mean, you learn things about Sosthenes being in the first verse of 1 Corinthians, and you learn all kinds of other random facts. And you can think, hey, I'm doing pretty well in the Christian life. I know all this stuff. But if we don't apply it to our lives, we end up deceiving ourselves. We feel spiritually mature because we can answer quiz questions or we can quote this passage of Scripture. Or we can talk about this Christian author. And sometimes we like to hide behind the smoke screen of being able to talk a good game. And that prevents people from really seeing that we aren't actually applying it in our lives. But this is all a deception. Learning a lot of information about God is deceiving if we aren't applying it to our lives. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up. We can get very proud if we have a lot of knowledge, but God isn't looking just for us to have knowledge about the Bible and about Him. He's looking for us to apply it. And he goes on in verses 23 and 24 to talk about a forgetful hearer. He says, Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So he uses an analogy here of a person who looks at themselves in a mirror. Now we all know how mirrors work. Mirrors work the same way 2,000 years ago as they work today. You look in the mirror to see how you look. And in the mirror sometimes it reveals things that need to be addressed. For instance, you may see, oh man, I, I was reading the newspaper. I had some black ink on my fingers. Now it's all over my face. I need to go wash my face off. You may look in the mirror and see hey, I really need to comb my hair. Or, or you see, wow, some of my lunch is still in my teeth right now. That's what mirrors can do. They can, they can expose the stuff that needs to be addressed. 
The mirrors in and of themselves don't have the power to actually make us fix the issue that they expose. We are the ones who have to actually put the knowledge and the information that the mirror gives us into practice. I mean, you could look in a hundred different mirrors and see that spinach in your teeth, but if you don't actually take it out, the mirror is not going to take it out for you. And, and James is saying here that it's the same way with the Word of God. That the Word of God can expose to us our sin. It can expose to us how God wants us to live. But we have the responsibility to actually put it into practice, to do something about it. And James says that there are a lot of forgetful hearers out there who hear what God is telling us to do, but we don't actually put it into practice. And that, he's saying, is the very same as seeing the spinach in your teeth in the mirror but then going away and keeping it in there for the rest of the day and not taking it out. And I think that when we look at ourselves, when we look at churches around America, we see that there are many people who are really these forgetful hearers. I mean, all of us have some degree of this in ourselves where we hear things that we ought to do, but we don't do them. Um, But statistics also show that there are a lot of forgetful hearers in our churches, and we we do that oftentimes. Uh, There was a study published a few years ago by Barna Research Group. It was a study that uh, compared the lives of those who claim to be evangelical Christians with the lives of those who don't claim to be evangelical Christians. And it showed that statistically, in a lot of aspects of everyday lifestyle, there's very little difference in the way that those who claim to be evangelical Christians live versus those who don't. And, and they look at practices that took place within the last 30 days of the lives of these individuals. And it said that there is very little difference between those who claim to be evangelical Christians and those who different in terms of whether they bet or gamble in the last 30 days, whether they visited a pornographic website, whether they take something that doesn't belong to them, whether they consult a psychic, whether they fight, physically fight someone else or abuse someone, whether they consume enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, whether they consume an illegal drug, whether they gossiped, whether they, whether they said something that wasn't true. I mean, that's a pretty broad list there. And this research of thousands of people showed that those who claimed to be evangelical Christians had very little difference in all these different categories in terms of their lifestyle as compared with those who didn't claim to be evangelical Christians. It's very easy to be a forgetful hearer. And and I think, I mean, what this kind of points to is that we have what could be called ADD, of application deficit disorder. That we struggle as Christians to apply things to our lives. We know them in our head, but we struggle to really live them out. But James goes on in verse 25 to point, not to point to that we shouldn't be um, a forgetful hearer, but instead we should be a faithful doer. Verse 25, James says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now James is talking about this process of growing spiritually as we apply God's word to our lives. We need to understand that this is not a quick, quick or an easy process. And as Americans, we are conditioned to really like things that are quick and easy. I mean, you think about wanting seven steps to um, a better marriage or three quick steps to lose 10 pounds in a month or, or we want our weather on the news in the first 10 minutes rather than waiting until 20 or 25 minutes in the news uh, station, news broadcast. We like things to be quick and we like things to be easy. I mean, I, I have a number of frozen dinners in our freezer at home. Do you know that there's one frozen dinner in our freezer that's been there for two years? I really like what's in it. 
But that particular frozen dinner has been there for two years because it takes eight minutes to heat up. All the other frozen dinners only take about three or four minutes. And when I'm in a hurry and want to eat quickly, eight minutes for me seems like too long to wait for that dinner. So that frozen dinner, even though it looks very tasty, I consider it every time I go in there, it's still sitting there after two years because it seems like it takes too long to heat up. We as as Americans like things that are quick and easy. And I think we, we have a temptation to want the same thing in our spiritual lives. That we want spiritual growth to happen quickly and easily. But we need to understand that's not how spiritual growth occurs. Uh, Eugene Peterson is a, a prominent pastor and author. He wrote a book a few years ago uh, that has a title that I think really captures well how spiritual growth takes place. The title of this book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's really what spiritual growth looks like. It's, it's, a, it's a long process, of, a consistent process of day in, day out, year in, year out, seeking to apply God's word to our lives. And we keep moving in that same direction of following God, a long obedience in the same direction. And here in verse 25, I think that James gives us three keys that we can apply to our lives for how we apply God's word to the way that we live. The first key that James points out in applying God's word is that we need to study it. Verse 25, he says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. This idea of looking intently is literally the idea of stooping down and looking at something. I mean, you think about someone who loves nature. They're out walking in the woods. They see some flower that they've never seen before. Uh, They want to examine it closer. So they stoop down. They look closely at that flower. They examine it. They study it. It takes some time. That's what it means to study God's Word, that we take the time out of our busy schedules to really dig in and find out what it says. So we need to look intently to study God's Word. And we not only should study it, but we need to stay at it, stay in God's Word. He says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this. See, the process of studying God's Word is a process that requires meditating on it, staying at it. I find oftentimes when I'm reading Scripture, um, I find a, a really cool verse or a passage that really strikes me or encourages me. But what oftentimes happens is I read that, I think that's really cool, and I shut the Bible and go on about my day. But what we need to do is to continue to look at that verse, meditate on it, figure out what does this really say to me. Well, we oftentimes short-circuit the process, which ends up short-circuiting our spiritual growth. So we need to study God's Word. We need to stay in it, continue to do so then we need to seek the application that God wants us to make in our lives. This is where we oftentimes fall short, that we, that we understand a little bit about God's Word, we gain information from it, but we don't actually apply it. He says that we need to do it. And this means that when we look at a passage of Scripture, we need to ask, God, if this is true, what difference should it make in my life? What needs to change? Is there some sin I need to confess Is there some uh, promise I need to to take a hold of for myself? Is there some action I need to boldly take? Is there something I'm doing I need to stop doing? Is there some relationship I need to reconcile? We need to ask in each one of the passages that we're reading, how does God want me to apply this to my life? It's not enough just to say, well, I think I need to spend more time with my children. I think I need to tell my spouse I love them. I I think I need to stop gossiping about so-and-so. 
It's not enough just to say that and to be convicted about it and feel guilty about it. We actually need to do that. And James goes on in the last couple of verses of our passage today and gives us a couple of practical examples of applying things to our lives. He says in verses 26 and 27, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think what James is doing here is pointing to a couple of themes uh, that he's going to expand on later in this book. But these are themes that he says, you know what, you shouldn't just acknowledge these things in your minds or with your lips. You need to live them out. The first theme theme that he points to is that we need to have God-honoring words. He says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. What this is saying is that if we think that we are a mature follower of Christ, yet we find ourselves often gossiping, gossiping about someone else or, or, or tearing other people down or complaining a lot, there's a problem there. We need to do a reality check and, and recognize that, you know what? If we have that stuff in our lives, we probably really aren't applying God's word as we ought to. Then he says our religion is useless. We deceive ourselves. He also points out care for the helpless. He says religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. God has a, has a big heart for people who are struggling or who are suffering or who are helpless. And he points out here and, and in many other places, orphans and widows who in many ways are helpless, especially in that culture, widows were helpless. Maybe not as much today, but maybe still somewhat. Orphans then, as today, I mean, need a lot of attention. There are 147 million orphans worldwide. It's not enough just to watch a video about orphans or, and, and have that break our heart or come to a Forever Families event here at Freedens and, and, and shed a few tears over the plight of orphans around the world. God's not looking for just a few tears and a moved heart. He's looking for action that cares for orphans and widows and people who are suffering and in distress, whether it's financial distress or, or, or emotional distress or other problems they're facing. He's looking for us to really put into action the principles that he has in his word. And finally, uh, the final uh, practical application point that James makes is that we need to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. This talks about rejecting the world's ways in terms of the world's attitudes and the world's actions. He's saying, look, if you find that the way that you're living, your lifestyle and your values is very much similar to the way that the rest of the world is living, there's a problem there. Then you're not really applying God's word to your life as you ought to be. Because in James's view, and it's the view of the entire Bible, if we are really following Christ, that will make a difference in our lives in terms of how we apply God's word to our lives. Now, in conclusion today, I think there's something that we need to, need to be, make very clear. That there is not some sort of performance plan to earn favor in God's eyes. This, this idea of applying God's word, of being obedient, is not about earning our way into heaven. It's not about trying to please him more than we would um, just through faith or something like that. What we need to understand is that we can never earn uh, enough favor in God's eyes through obeying and through, uh, through applying God's word to make ourselves right with him in and of ourselves. If we try to do that, we're only going to burn ourselves out. We're going to get disillusioned. 
We're going to get prideful thinking, hey, look, I'm doing better than they are. We need to understand that we all fall short when we try to live a good life, when we try to obey God's commands. There's only one person who's ever lived a perfect life, and that's Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that he has lived a perfectly obedient life because that qualifies him to be our substitute in paying the penalty we deserve for all of our sins and all of our ways of falling short. And it's only through faith in Christ that we can be made right in, in God's eyes. So when we look at obedience, we need to see obedience not as the cause of salvation, but as the effect of salvation as we respond in gratitude to what Christ has done for us. The obedience to God, applying God's word, flows out of our gratitude for what God has done for us. But God is looking for followers who will prioritize him in such a way that they don't merely hear what God says, but apply his word to our lives. And James says that if we do that, verse 25, we will be blessed. Let's pray.